Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. So I'm delighted today to be speaking to Jerome Saris about the role of psychedelics in managing mental health and the potential application for patients living with cancer. And so let me introduce you, first of all, to Jerome, and then we'll start our our chat. So Jerome Saris is an Australian Government National Health and Medical Research Council Research Fellow. It's a mouthful. It's called the NHMRC and Professor of Integrative Medicine, Integrative Mental Health. He currently leads the Healthy Minds Research Theme at the National Institute of Complementary Medicine, NICM, Health Research Institute, and is the co-director of Psyche Institute, which can be pronounced in many ways. And, and this uh, is an institute which studies psychedelic medicines in Australia, and he'll tell us more about that. Jerome moved from clinical practice to academic work, completing a doctorate at the University of Queensland in the field of psychiatry, with a particular interest in anxiety and mood disorder research pertaining to plant medicine, plant medicine research, including psychedelic medicines, medical cannabis and kava. Um, he gives a really interesting talk on kava, but that's not the topic today. And he also has an interest in lifestyle medicine and integrative mo- models of care. Professor Saris has over 200 publications and has been involved in dozens of clinical trials with integrative medicine field. And I am just very excited that we finally coordinated a time that we can talk together. And um, we're really going to spend a bit of this time exploring this role of psychedelics in this new and exciting um, space in mental health and how we can potentially um, look at the role of psychedelics in the mental health of our patients living with cancer. So, look, I'm going to start, Jerome, in a place that I like to start with many people is just tell us a bit about why and how you became involved in integrative medicine for mental health and particularly some of the work that you've done and then and then why psychedelics? Yes, look, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Judith, for the invitation and Yes, it was a, a, a Christmas or a Festivus miracle that we managed to get a time together, uh, both being fairly busy. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> yes, look, gosh, I would say, first of all, I was initially inspired or at least it captured my imagination, the potential uh, therapeutic application, the power of plant-based medicines back when I was a teenager I remember reading books around various psychotropic plant medicines. I mean, gosh, it was over 30 years ago. I just found it fascinating that people could consume plants 
and they'll have therapeutic effects uh, and change your brain chemistry and, and, and have uh, quite potent effects uh, on, on, on the brain. Uh, and then that, I guess, sort of promulgated a, a journey uh, towards researching uh, this particular area, uh, doing qualifications uh, across the integrated medicine field more broadly, uh, doing some clinical work and then going into academia after a certain uh, time, having an interest uh, besides integrated medicine, I should say, within integrated medicine, looking at lifestyle uh, approaches, nutraceuticals and plant-based medicines. And, and, and I would have to say my primary passion has always been psychotropic plant medicines. Uh, and we've, we've obviously... Uh, been doing increasing work with medicinal cannabis, and I think that's also uh, moved the field forward uh, towards exploring other plant-based medicines and other uh, substances uh, within the field, uh, you know, pertaining to psychotropic plant medicines. So when you talk about psychotropic medicines, can you explain sort of what that is and what this field is and a little bit maybe about your um, the work that you're doing in your new institute around um, psychedelics and mental health? Um, yes. Well, I guess the, the listeners would be aware of the, the classical psychedelics, LSD, for example, psilocybin from uh, the psilocybin or magic mushrooms. There's also uh, mescaline from peyote uh, is another example. Uh, and uh, ayahuasca, which contains DMT and some homala alkaloids, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, soon. Um, but there's also MDMA, uh, you know, with, within, I should say, the field more broadly. It's obviously an amphetamine-based uh, compound, uh, an empathogen. And then uh, also more broadly, you could also uh, consider ketamine, uh, a disassociative uh, analgesic as, as sort of part of the broader field. Of, of psychedelic research. So then how do you know, so I guess what are you studying at the moment? What what catches, is it all of these psychedelics? I mean, which ones are the ones that are the real focus in um, mental health? Is it all of these or is it, you know, one, one particular agent? Uh, yes, well, I suppose, I mean, I don't want to say the word or the phrase pick your poison because that's that. That's absolutely not what, yeah. how we want to describe. Uh, but really, it, it, it just depends, of course, what the condition is, which people are researching it for. I think that uh, there is, or, or I should say firstly, that these particular interventions or these agents can be used uh, across various psychiatric disorders. But they, at the moment, the way things are shaking out, uh, psilocybin has been studied a fair bit uh, for depression uh, and also treatment-resistant depression. I mean, there's a, there's a scope to use it, for example, with anxiety disorders, potentially for trauma. Uh, MDMA uh, has uh, focused uh, more on PTSD uh, as an application, but once again, I mean, there's there's the potential to to use that for other disorders. Uh, ayahuasca or DMT, certainly in our data, which I can to talk in more depth yeah. soon, uh, there tends to be uh, supportive use, at least epidemiologically, and there's some emerging clinical trial evidence uh, for depression, for improving mood, uh, but also for trauma and substance 
and alcohol use as well. Now, LSD was studied ages ago. I'm sure listeners may be aware uh, the the studies in sort of the 60s and 70s, and then the, uh, I should say probably early 70s, and then the prohibition kicked in. And then, uh, yeah, so it hasn't been studied obviously since, although there is uh, some research starting to happen with LSD. Yeah, and so what is it about the psychedelics that, um, like your work maybe with ayahuasca, that makes it so uh, intriguing to look at why it can improve mental health and depression? Can you tell us a little bit about the mechanism mm. and why? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the people people do ask that. They say, well, you know, haven't we got all these other pharmaceutical medicines? Haven't we got psychology? Uh, isn't that enough? But the reality is if you look at the data, especially well, I'd like to say post-COVID, but I don't even know if we can say it, you know, I suppose peri-COVID, that we've just got such a a mental health uh, onslaught, an an issue in society that certainly COVID obviously hasn't helped. And in terms of our treatments, while we do have uh, a range of effective treatments, they're not always effective for people and they may not have full symptomatic relief. Uh, in some cases, people may be treatment resistant uh, or they'll just get uh, too many side effects if we're talking uh, about particular uh, pharmaceutical agents. Um, so we do need what I like to say, just to paraphrase the, the Jaws movie, you know, we need a bigger boat. And I started uh, my research focusing more around the herbal medicines, the you know, nutrients, general lifestyle approaches. And the one thing which really occurred to me, especially when, you know, we're trying to use these agents for serious psychiatric disorders, mm. you know, be it an anxiety disorder, depression, traumas, uh, psychotic disorders, you, you name it, that you do feel that you do need a bigger boat. Now, that's not to say that these that these integrative therapies uh, aren't effective or, or, or should not be considered within an integrative paradigm because I think they should be. I think they can have fantastic effects on managing certain symptoms uh, used in combination of lifestyle uh, approaches, I think uh, is absolutely the way to go for for many patients. Uh, But, uh, you know, there are some disorders, there are some, uh, you know, psychiatric disorders which people do need a stronger uh, neuropharmacological effect some medicines uh, will address that. But for, as I said before, some people that, that just isn't effective or there's issues with side effects. And then along comes, uh, certainly over the last, uh, within the last decade, increasing research on some of these psychedelic agents oh. and showing really quite potent results. So it's really inspired a new generation, a renaissance, if you like, of psychedelic researchers but I think the difference between what's happening now and you know back in the sort of the 60s and 70s uh, is that you know medicine has advanced uh, as well as our psychotherapeutic techniques so we can do the sort of research we need and set up the clinical models and have the medical care to treat these agents seriously within that framework and 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 for them to be used as as bona fide medicines. So if we take, say, the example of, you know, I work with, you know, the common antidepressants we use, the serotonin uptake inhibitors or the noradrenergic or the monoamic, you know, we, we know our 
antidepressants have developed based on receptor activity, that there's something different about psychedelics, isn't there? And if you take psilocybin or ayahuasca, can you tell us a little bit about the mechanism of action perhaps and why this is a, a potentially a more therapeutic, um, a new therapy with a new approach and a new um, way of viewing how we manage, um, say, depression or anxiety or PTSD? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I guess was that a long-winded answer? <laughs> you know, tell us about the mechanism. Mechanisms of action. There we go. Yeah, De- definitely uh, happy to clarify that. So, uh, I, I guess the the easiest differentiation, if you look at antidepressants, I mean, they'll they'll be, I guess, what you describe as silver bullet, or at least they tend to be sort of silver bullet medications modifying a particular serotonin receptor, or you know, as you said before, uh, being, for example, a serotonin, uh, you know, reuptake uh, uh, inhibitor. Mm. So with psychedelics, the, the classical psychedelics, at least they'll bind with the uh, 5-HT2A receptor, but also, you know, they may have a preference for 1A, 1B and, and 2C, mm. uh, other examples. So they do have a range of different effects, but beyond that, you're also looking at uh, anti-inflammatory modification, uh, you know, brain-derived neurotropic factor and uh, neuroendocrine modulatory effects, uh, depending on, you know, there's this range of other uh, substances you go on and on about it, but, but they work also on, on other pathways. It might be, you know, uh, NMDA or glutamate pathways. Uh, it's, yes, some of them uh, may also have a, a, a role with uh, you know, affecting dopamine uh, pathways as well. So they they tend to have a broad range uh, of effects. Yeah, and I think that's what they, they certainly do differentiate themselves. For example, uh, with classic uh, antidepressants. So people will talk about um, out of body experiences, uh, this neuroplasticity um, mm. effect, uh, mm. and that. The whole um, the use of psychedelics is actually an experience rather than a. Um, can you talk a little bit about this um, guided psychedelic experience as therapeutic versus mm. taking as an antidepressant, mm. anti anxiety in microdosing, or how you yeah. how we understand that, how we can understand that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what differentiates it, and this is what uh, I think is quite exciting, is that it's not just about targeting an isolated receptor and, and that's it. Um, if you look at the effects on neurocircuitry, and, mm. and, and that is is where neuroscience has certainly been trying to, to lead us uh, more towards, is, is to look at the brain, uh, the interconnectivity, uh, what's happening between brain regions, communication mm. on more of a macro level. Um, and how that interfaces with uh, consciousness uh, as well as obviously mental uh, health or, or ill health. Um, for example, with psychedelics, they uh, dampen what's known as the default mode network. And when the default mode network is activated, the circuitry oh. in the brain, you get uh, increased rumination and introspection. So the person's you know, going around in their mind, they're ruminating, uh, and this happens with a range of psychiatric disorders. You think about rumination, for example, with anxiety and depression uh, and trauma. Uh, so it, in a sense, it diffuses that, dampens that, uh, and, you know, as a way of illustrating the psychological effect. person from experiencing psychedelics may 
uh, you know, be able to move outside their own personal narrative, which in some mm-hmm. cases might be, you know, very negative, um, that they conceptualise things more broadly, their connection with other people, with uh, understanding existential concepts uh, on a deeper level there. I mean, for want of a better expression, connection with the universe. You know, some people yeah. may find the experience very mystical. Um, now, when it comes in, in regards to framing that, for example, uh, in the context of cancer, mm-hmm. uh, cancer survivorship, uh, and also people dealing with uh, the, you know, either through palliative care or, or, the, or the concept of, you know, potentially uh, their own demise. That yeah. to have these experiences, I think, within a therapeutic framework supported by, for example, a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. uh, doing preparatory sessions towards this, taking this particular agent, having this profound experience. Um, people describe it as an increase in awe. Uh, greater connection or connection to something greater than themselves. Um, this uh, sense of you know ego dissolution or um, you know I- increase in what they call sort of oceanic boundlessness, uh, I think is a very profound experience for somebody who is experiencing uh, cancer or palliative care or, or you know go, going through that uh, end of life challenge. So. Uh, these sort of therapies are very powerful. You, you can't get that from any other uh, standard drug. And and that's what I guess is really interesting in some of the studies being done in that end-of-life space or people with eventually fatal disease and dealing with that existential angst and distress about, oh, my God, I'm dying, how do I deal with this? Mm. That the idea that you can have a one-off or a, a couple of sessions as a psychedelic guided therapy and actually that therapeutic benefit is long-lasting. I mean, that's quite different from other antidepressants or other um, psychiatric medications, isn't it? Exactly. And it's not a very good pharmaceutical model. So we're just going to recap a little bit and take a step back. Um, And I was asking, I guess, the question of this really um, comparing that psychedelic guided maybe two-session experience that they're doing studies within people near the end of life versus um, the the classic way antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medications are used and a little bit about this really interesting way of managing, of using psychedelics therapeutically. And if you want to just talk about that. Yes, well, it it is a different type of treatment model and one could argue uh, from a big pharma perspective, probably not a great model. You know, if you can get people having strong response and potential remission with one or two treatments, yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, But look, that being said, I I mean, for some people, look, it it, it could be a case of one or two sessions they're in remission and that's it. We don't have enough long-term data. My my sense is, is that it may be something which you know, over time, people will have repeat sessions. It's not just a case of take one and you're cured for life. Uh, as we know, psychiatric disorders, they can change and morph and new things can come up and, you know, you can get people uh, yeah, having having uh, episodes triggered and, yeah, so forth. So, yes, it's, it's a completely different model uh, that, that, you know, the, the treatment may be over, for example, uh, a one-month period, could be several months, uh, I mean, there is, you know, obviously preparation involved in terms of the psychotherapy as well as afterwards for the integration of the experience. Um, so that is important. Uh, but, yeah, I think it does hold promise in terms of uh, treating 
more substantially than, than medication. And another key point is that it's been described in a sense to have a, a, a different therapeutic goal. In, you know, if you look at antidepressants in the context of depression, in a sense, we are looking at band-aiding. We're looking at dampening, you know, to, which for some people, you know, it is important. Uh, but at the same time, when we contrast that with with psychotherapy and psychedelics, the person is, uh, in a sense, especially if you're looking at a treatment uh, such as ayahuasca, confronted with a particular trauma or substance uh, use issue, depression, they're, they're, they're supported while they go through that, but it's something where they are processing that, and that may also take them back into uh, formative experiences through childhood, which link into that, and that provides the the context for the insights which they will uh, hopefully achieve, which could be transformative. So completely different model. And that's really interesting, I guess, in the cancer space when people are... Uh you know, confronted with an acute traumatic experience such as cancer, which yeah. may or may not have um, an ability, they may or may not have the ability to return to the life they once had or they are pushed into a, you know, the facing the end of their life, trying to make meaning out of the experience and um, the, the distress that it's caused or it, mm. it seems like... And I guess that's why people are so interested in the cancer space. It seems like a really amazing um, tool to enhance psychotherapy um, and, and enable people to, to take that step forward, to actually re-engage with living or find pathways forward to make sense of where they're at. Exactly. And that, look, that is the key point, I think, is to make sense of it, to understand it and to get meaning. Uh, I think in that context is is critical. Which makes you rethink about defining mental health. I mean, is it only for people with DSM, whatever number we're up to now, five, six, <laughs> I don't know, um, <laughs> yes. uh, mental health conditions or is it um, something that can be used in people that just really want to um, explore further, understand further, develop their uh, ability to cope with a with a diagnosis of a life-limiting illness. Yeah, and I, th- and I think as a society we need to have a mature conversation around that. Uh, the My thoughts are that, you know, initially the critical uh, steps forward uh, concern safety, concern, uh, you know, optimising treatment models, uh, also, you know, more robust uh, scientific inquiry around uh, the efficacy of these agents. Uh, but I think once that's established, then uh, the, the natural attention, I think, goes towards, you know, greater existential issues mm. in terms of consciousness, exploration, uh, meaning in life, uh, society as a whole, and, and the effects that these agents could potentially have. You know, if it makes us people who are aware of ourselves more, uh, our faults, it, you know, things we can improve, we can be kinder to each other, hopefully, uh, and in the world, you know, not to be put too much of a hippie spin on it, but hopefully the world can be a better place. Um, so I think, look, there is a, a, a larger, there, or there are larger questions and larger issues which we can grapple with, but immediately I think it really is the, um, uh, the, the medical focus uh, which we are uh, addressing. And so if you're taking the example of PTSD, 
PTSD. Is that okay if I use that as an example? Sure, sure. Yeah, so PTSD is something that I guess um, psychedelics have been used in, and I and I don't know which one, so I'll leave that to you to um to maybe comment on it. If um, have been used to enable people to relive some experiences, even come to have near death experiences in order to move forward, um, mm. to um, uh, engage, re-engage with being able to live more fully. And people will often say that people with the diagnosis of cancer have may experience PTSD. So <coughs> how do, you, do you want to talk a little bit about just how they're used in that space in a therapeutic way, which is a really horrible thing, difficult disease, um, not disease, um, condition to live with, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the the work in this space uh, has largely been headed up by MAPS. Yeah. Uh, we're in America yeah, using MDMA and they've got a, a treatment package around prescribing MDMA. There's been some very positive recent phase three data showing that uh, it is effective uh, quite stunningly in reducing people's uh, PTSD uh, symptoms. So uh, that's not to say that uh, psilocybin may not have a role and, and, and with our epidemiological data, uh, which uh, we've been publishing uh, through Psyche Institute, uh, this was led by Associate Professor Daniel Perkins uh, through the GAP study, the Global Ayahuasca Project. Uh, it, it did show that uh, people using ayahuasca uh, reportingly, uh, for trauma and PTSD-based uh, conditions, uh, do report uh, it, it does have a very strong level of success uh, in terms of addressing those symptoms. So um, there are, I think, emerging data, more so in the, the MDMA space, and, you know, absolutely that is a potential role for these agents. So where do they fit in? Do they fit into standard psychiatry? Is this integrative medicine? Well, it's a good question. I think it's a question for uh, policymakers, regulators, in regards to you know where it sits. Uh, we don't really get involved with psyche too much in the regulatory uh, advocacy part of things. We just tend to focus on the science. Um, I guess what I can say is that. I mean, it really depends on the jurisdiction. I mean, there are some jurisdictions in America where it's, it's legalised and it's a free-for-all. And we, we certainly, I mean, I th certainly I think we recognise there's a, a whole raft of concerns about that approach. At the same time, some jurisdictions may be highly restrictive and prohibitive and people who ideally should be uh, potentially exploring use of these agents under the care, for example, of a psychiatrist and or psychologist aren't getting access to them. So it's about, I think, finding a, a judicious path forward, um, you know, and also, like in many cases, I think sort of what happened with medicinal cannabis, you know, catching up the research. And, mm. and that's why I think, yeah, we're, we're really trying to drive the research uh, forward as best we can because we don't want to be, you know, stuck in a situation where, yeah, like with medicinal cannabis, perhaps it, it does start to get opened up, but then, you know, we don't have the data to support what it should be used uh, for, for whom should be you know, who should be using it, and in what uh, circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I see. I been chatting in this, talking in this space a little bit, and I work obviously quite a bit in um, medicinal cannabis, but also in integrative therapies and looking at mm. how patients with cancer generally cope. 
um, the various benefits of different therapies and how actually to make this experience meaningful and the impact of um, you, what's going on physically on your on your mental state and vice versa. So I, for me, I think it's quite an interesting um, an interesting development in expanding our toolbox on how we generally care for people living with cancer, but also people living with mental health mm. issues. And, and carers as well. I mean, I, I, I'm not unfortunately living yeah. too much in depth, but we've got an association with a, a wonderful group up in Queensland mm. uh, who is looking at doing work in regards to supporting carers, uh, you know, in the cancer space. With psychedelics. Yeah, with psychedelics. Yeah. I can't give away too much uh, detail because of confidence, <laughs> but except to say, uh, you know, we... We really do need to think more transpersonally, uh, more broadly, because, mm. you know, we know the damaging effect of cancer on the family unit. So we also need to support uh, people going through these particular conditions. Psychedelics, uh, you know, may be, uh, you know, another consideration. If we can do some research around that, uh, especially if you've got very aggressive cancers, which, uh, you know, can take away loved ones very quickly. Uh, it's a case of also address, addressing the you know the aftermath of that. So psilocybin is probably the most popular psychedelic that is being talked about because you know you can go out in the in the fields and hopefully pick the right mushroom, but um, hopefully, but either that or die. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so not recommended. But why why psilocybin? What's so magical about this magical mushroom? Why psilocybin? Gosh. Uh, well, I mean, what is good about it, say, for example, in the context of, ma you know, magic mushrooms or the psilocybin mushroom is that uh, we know in this case, okay, what is the active constituent? There are other alkaloids and, and other compounds in the psilocybin, but we do know this is the psychoactive or major psychi psych oh. psychoactive agent. So we can say, okay, if you have this given at a standardised amount, so 25 30 milligrams, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty sure you're going to get, you know, a particular effect from it. So I think that's encouraging. Uh, that's, or I should say, beneficial. There's, you know, many companies around the world now producing it synthetically or extracting it from the psilocybin mushroom. Uh, and I think, but I think there's also something, because it's been used for thousands of years, there's something very primal and very ingrained in human nature. Um, that being said, also in animal nature. In regards to taking to taking these particular, um, you know, mushroom compounds. So, uh, yeah, I think it's an instinctual desire, which makes sense. I and mean, humans, we are very driven to understanding, to know, uh, to connect. And I think this this is an agent which allows for that. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I know that you've studied carver a lot. You're studying medicinal cannabis. Mm. Um, yeah. There seems to be a thread in that in that space of using going back to your I think your opening comment about the um, your, your desire to understand plants and why yes. plants are so therapeutic as opposed to perhaps um, compounds that have been created. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is my personal yeah. desire or passion or interest. I've just I've always. I had a passion for nature and I love plants. Um, and I can understand, you know, people are very traditional pharmacologists, you know, go through the, the pharmacy model that 
they want the, the isolated constituent and they want it to bind to just, you know, one particular receptor, otherwise it's a dirty drug and, you know, that's it. Uh, I take a different approach. I mean, I think you know, nature's the master chemist. Uh, the complexity of plants, the chemistry is absolutely undeniable. And, you know, can we get the best of both worlds? Can we create medicinal agents which draw on the complexity, the potential synergistic interactions with these constituents but then standardise them, focus them uh, on, you know, just a handful of compounds, uh, but then not throw away the, you know, the other constituents, which, which may have very subtle but uh, powerful uh, entourage effects. So that, that's my, you know, my personal life's interest. Uh, other people have other interests, uh, for sure. And I think it's very interesting understanding the... Um you know, the history of these plants being used medicinally through generations and looking at um, why they were chosen and why they were used and what they were used for as well. So we see that with cannabis. Do we see that also with psilocybin, mm -hmm. uh, a history yes. of use for therapies as a therapeutic agent? Yeah, absolutely. And the same for ayahuasca, the uh, yeah. South American uh, plant combination oh. uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a strong tradition uh, of historical use. Yeah, and ayahuasca has obviously become, you know, uh, not a one-off. Yeah, the ayahuasca parties and the, I, the, the use of psychedelics as almost a, 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 a gathering and um, social um, yes. experience. I mean, how do we, how do we navigate that? Does that, uh, yes. does that mess up what we're trying to do in, in the medical space? I mean, my, my philosophy is always an inclusive one. I think that there's uh, there's room for both. If people want to go over to South America, have a traditional shamanic experience, uh, then, yeah, all power to them. Uh, I mean, as long as they know, as long as they're informed, uh, they have to choose, I think, that pathway very carefully. I mean, we, we do know there's been instances of, you know, issues of, of assault, sexual assaults, you know, crime around that. There are, you know, you get a you, you handful of charlatans. Uh, you know, there can be issues if a person does have an experience like that. Let's face it, they're in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. You know, is there medical care? Has there been appropriate screening? You know, is it right for them? Because it's not right. And we need to point this out. Psychedelics are not right for everybody, um, just like all medicines are not right for everybody. It's, you know, um, it's something which needs to be considered. And then what about the post-integration? They've experienced this. I mean, we've got data, you know, through our studies showing that a you know, very small percentage, but nevertheless a percentage of people will have issues with integrating the experience uh, into their, their normal lives. So uh, there needs to be this support framework around that to make sure that that it's done safely. So, yes, there is that traditional option, um, but also we hope to advance, uh, yeah, a more, for want of a better word, westernised, uh, you know, psychotherapeutic model uh, for people to, you know, to, to well, that's, have. That's really interesting. I didn't even think of the post-experience post integration. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> I, this is yeah, a bit of, I suppose, a, a strange divergence, but I used to live in Glastonbury in, in England. People may be aware of Glastonbury with the festival and, you know, I think I performed there years ago when I was, oh gosh, 18. Uh, I'd love to say I was on the NME stage, you know, performing music, but we just did a, did a little drama, a little theatre thing. 
Uh, and the experience I had living in Glastonbury, I mean, it was just crazy times and, uh, yeah, really eye-opening experiences. And then when I came back to Australia, uh, this time I lived in Brisbane, uh, I couldn't fit in. I could, it was very hard for me to relate to my peers, my family. I, I was just, it was, it was just it was like I came from another planet. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, People have these experiences, and this, I guess, with a psychedelic is a bit more of a condensed experience, mm. um, but it can shake up their perception in terms of how they view the world. It can also change their relationship uh, with people around them. Now, it can be a very good thing, but it also can be a very challenging thing. So, yes, we do very much need to, to have that integration support. Wow. So this seems, seems like that psychedelics actually in their use might actually change the way we are supporting people um, with either coping, using them to um, engage more in understanding the experience they're living through in the or their past lived experiences or future mm. um, experiences. Um, and in cancer I can see that being really interesting, but then we have to also look at then developing an infrastructure to support those people post-experience. Yes. Yeah, look, that's, and that's exactly right. It's not a case of just here, take, you know, to have a trip and see you later, have a nice day, and that's it. It's, it is, it's the scaffolding uh, around that particular treatment. And that's why treatment models and psychological care is, is so important. Um, But also I'd go further and, and, and say, I mean, it's one of my own uh, personal interests, uh, as you know, in terms of lifestyle medicine, but, you know, these, particular treatments marry up beautifully with some of our integrative approaches. So yoga, for example, you know, mindfulness, meditation, breath work, um, you know, the diet, the quality of a person's diet uh, and, and physical activity, exercise, sleep, uh, you, know, subst- you know, lowering and having hopefully beneficial effects, lowering substance and alcohol use. So, so within that more of that integrative paradigm, I think they, they fit very nicely, the, the, those um, agents. So it's almost developing a whole plan of care from the start that you're having this experience, but a part of that support is introducing some of those ongoing therapies into into life and lifestyle change to support mm. their, their mental and physical health. Yeah, look, I, I, absolutely. That's, that's mm. exactly right. Wow. Well, because we're going to close up soon, I just wanted you to say just a couple of words on... I know we haven't talked about microdosing at all. I want to just in like two minutes, does microdosing sort of fit in here or is that a whole separate topic? And then finally, just do you see this as a whole way of changing our way of managing mental health in the future? Uh, yes, well, I, I think absolutely it's paradigm changing. Yeah. I think we still need to be sober uh, and judicious in terms of how we see this being integrated in our in our medical system, how and and also you know advance the data and you know it's very encouraging. But I think you know we we don't want to get overly excited uh, until you know further work is done. I mean, it looks very encouraging, absolutely. Uh, but in, in terms of microdosing. Uh, there's a little bit of research uh, out there with that. Uh, it's the the intention is, uh, I mean, could for example, if we use one tenth of a dose of LSD or, or psilocybin, could could we get 
you know, mental health effects which are positive. I mean, people use it traditionally to have an effect uh, on improving creativity, insight, maybe a bit of a mood boost. I mean, yes, possibly, but, I mean, at the very least, we can see there are, there are issues if somebody's trying to microdose and they're, I don't know, they're cutting up their LSD tab or they're, what are they going to do, breaking off half a mushroom or, a, I mean, you know, gosh, it's just fraught with issues in terms of uh, where we're at the moment in regards to just obviously safety issues. Uh, but, look, it, there is the potential. I think it just really needs to be explored through more robust science. There was one study recently which came out uh, which showed that microdosing didn't tend to have that much of an obvious effect over placebo in, re in regards to mood changes. Uh, I mean, these people, it should be said, uh, weren't you know, clinically depressed, um, but there was from memory uh, some positivity in terms of experiencing or increasing inspiration. You know, for, yeah. for example. So, yeah, I think if people are using it more recreationally. It's not something we're uh, obviously getting into in terms of our scientific right. work, but yeah, the people are, are following that through. Yeah. So, I guess I, I always reflect on a, a patient of mine who decided that she had about a few weeks to live. She had dreadful metastatic um, breast cancer and had worked with um, people with PTSD all her life and decided that she was going to microdose until she died and report back to me um, every week of her experiences. And, I, and it was this um, with a guide. And for her it was this incredible way of dealing with her existential distress of um, the meaning of her, her cancer has had on her whole family and her life. Um, not clinically depressed, not anxious, but found it to be so therapeutic. Obviously, it wasn't a legal process and we've got a little way to go until this process mm -hmm. is legal. But the yes. idea that you can potentially um, change the way people live with advanced cancers, change the way people approach death and dying and mm -hmm. um, acceptance is, um, to me, it was I, I learned a lot through her experience and our very interesting consults. But um, I think this is a really interesting space in cancer care because often people aren't clinically depressed. They're not, you know, they don't have um, generalised anxiety disorders. They're anxious and they're feeling down and they're dealing with how to cope and with what's going on and what the, how I'm going to be able to move forward knowing that I have a finite time but I don't know when that time is up and I think that um, the the world the world of psychedelics is um, and this option for cancer patients is going to be really exciting I think the research in this space is going to be really um, really important to help us work out do we have a new uh, therapeutic drug or process or um, that we can introduce into expanding our toolbox of how this integrative approach to supporting people to live well with mental health and with cancer. So um, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm excited. Yes. And I'll, I'll just give a shout-out to, to Dr Mark Ross, who, who, who does this work. Dan and Bees does hmm. fantastic uh, yeah, end-of-life work and, 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 yeah, the reports she gets back of some of the experiences for, for people with those end-of-life existential issues is, is staggering. So I think there's a, a heck of a lot of potential uh, to relieve the suffering of, uh, of many people. 
So, Look, I think, um, so thank you, Jerome, for your time. Thank you. Thank um, thanks for introducing us to a topic that I think all of us are really interested in understanding more about, and um, and I'm sure there's a lot more we can talk about. But um, I um, and so maybe we'll find a new time, a new topic, a new um, podcast in the future. And um, Jerome's t-shirt is covered in mushrooms, so um, <coughs> I've. You know, we've watched uh, it's fantastic fungi. It isn't quite the visual of that, but it oh, is boy. a uh, hell of a good T-shirt. Shirt, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. No, I appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be with you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Judith. We've, it's been great. It's been a oh, good talk. Wish you all the best. Take care.